0: episode of Cinema Smorgasbord Presents, Bartell Me Something Good, we will be discussing another Bartell short, Naughty Nurse, as well as his feature-length directorial debut from 1972, the wonderfully weird and deliciously sleazy private parts. My name is Adriana Gober, and just like last time, I'm joined by two strange men who may or may not have an inflatable doll hiding in their beds, Doug Tilly and Liam O'Donnell. Uh, how are you guys? It's, it's been a while.
1: I don't like you referring to my wife as an inflatable doll. I think she's (laughs) a lot more than that, actually.
0: So, well, first of all, how how have you guys been? Because it's been a minute since we last spoke.
1: I mean, the world is awful and and Mm -hmm. chaotic. Uh, But other than that, I guess I'm okay. Um, I haven't gotten COVID yet. uh, And, you know, my daughter's super cute. So I guess things are mostly good. But it's, it's hard right now to be too positive about any like I feel like anytime i talk to someone if I if I'm too excited like yeah I don't know things are pretty great I'm like well I mean you know other than the general awfulness of everything things are pretty good I guess the world is bad and it's looking
2: to get worse in fact if I had to predict how things are going to go it would be incredibly negative but in terms of the bubble of people around me and my family and friends things seem to be okay with them so I'm trying to take solace in that for as long as I can
0: yeah, I'm I'm pretty much in the same boat. So before we break and start discussing, private parts, um, let's talk a bit about Naughty Nurse. Um, it's this short film he made before he started a production on Private Parts, and um, so here's a little synopsis: A doctor and nurse sneak away for a kinky encounter, only to be interrupted by a cop with a secret of his own. (laughs) Now, this this short is currently available as a special feature on the Criterion Blu-ray and DVD of Eating Raoul, along with the Secret Cinema. Um, It stars Valerie Armstrong as the titular Naughty Nurse, Ron Grathwall as Naughty Doctor, (laughs) Christopher St. John as Naughty Cop, and there seems to be a theme developing with these names, (laughs) Alex Elias as Nurse Dorothy, Dennis Helfand as Nasty Orderly, and the most interesting credit in this film, Robert Downey Sr. as Desk Clerk. (laughs) Although he's credited in the film as Bob Downey, which I got a kick out of for some reason. (laughs) So, um, much like the secret cinema, uh, Naughty Nurse was shot on location in New York City um, on a very, very minimal budget, using uh, various short ends and, and borrowed equipment and I don't know what what, what did you guys think of this? this is a nine minute short so there's not a lot but it, it it I I get a real kick out of it so I'm curious to hear what both of you think
2: to me it felt more like kind of like a mission statement for Paul Bartel like yes. this is like the the uh, um the key the the um uh, what what is the Oh, the Rosetta Stone for the rest of his career to a certain extent. And you're right. It's short, right? I mean, it's it's like a, a gag really more than it is uh, anything of of a lot of substance. But it also feels very transgressive. I think the fact that Robert Denny, who's kind of this icon of independent film of that time period, makes that appearance. It's almost like it's like a seal of approval to say that, look, this is the next guy. This is the person coming up who's going to be able to make these kind of transgressive movies. and uh, And it made me really excited to watch what we're going to be watching going forward it's especially interesting to watch these two movies together the short film and the movie we're going to talk about because there's just so much kink in it a surprising amount i think and and the kind of material that you can kind of get the sense that this is part of the culture that paul Bartel is very aware of and i also like the fact that he wrote this even though there isn't a lot of dialogue in it or anything like that that it just feels like a very personal project for him uh and because when we talk about um the the film that we're going to be talking about you know he, he contributed to the script but that's also a lot of other ideas this one feels kind of pure uncut paul Bartel.
1: it is kind of like a short gag you know it's very much <laughs> it made me think of like a a, a well-executed uh uh piece of like a like a comedy show or something, you know what i mean? But on the other hand, like the way that it's filmed, the kind of uh the style of it uh i don't know the, there there was something about I, I think this uh Valerie Armstrong performance that i really liked and, and it's not just her what she's doing, but how he's filming her, you know, and 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 the sassiness of it all. It it was just fun, it, even though I think on paper, like if you just told me, like I, I'll be honest, I had no idea what this was going in. I just mm-hmm. knew the name Naughty Nurse, and I'm like, I have no, I'm, what the fuck is this gonna be, you know? And then uh, as it unfolds, I'm really wrapped into it, and then afterwards, I thought oh, if you just wrote that down for me, I'd say, oh, that's funny. You know, like, it would be so, for me, <laughs> underwhelming. Like, just <laughs> describe it to me at a party, and I'm going, yeah, okay, that's something that's I want to watch. But watching it, I'm totally like, ah, oh, the cop is the thing. Oh, okay. You know, like I'm, I'm actually engaged by it. And I don't know why that – I don't have a finger on why that is. If it's just his technique, if it's the uh, attitude of it all, if it's the, the way that it plays out, I'm not sure. But it did make me uh, – now, I watched this after I watched uh, – Uh, private parts so it it very much was like okay I see how he's going in this direction exploring these themes Uh, but you know uh, between the three of us I'm the one who's seen the least amount of his stuff so it's helpful for me I feel like I'm getting more of a feel for what he what he was doing and what he was interested in in a way that I probably wouldn't have otherwise
2: I think it's funny to think that his first film the first short the secret cinema is all about voyeurism and this, uh, you know, is kind of a comedic take on kink, and you put those two things together, and you sort of get private parts out right. of it. Like right? You can see yeah, These totally. themes, you know, kind of piecing his kind of worldview and the kind of content he wants to put in his film. It's why it's interesting that when you ask someone who might be aware of Paul Bartel's career. The first film they might think of is Death Race 2000, but now thinking about what we've seen so far and the films that come after that, it might be the least reflective of the kind of films that he seemed like he was intent on making.
0: And Liam, to your point, what really works about Naughty Nurse for me is um, the tone of it and and the attitude and the very Mm. playful approach to um, what at the time, certainly, was very transgressive sexuality. There is a very celebratory element to it that you know I I really enjoy and relate to, um, and Doug, since you you I mean we everybody has sort of acknowledged the fact that there's there's a lot of um, sh- shared themes, um, you know, with the secret cinema, naughty nurse, and private parts. But um, something that I find interesting is. You know, while the, while Naughty Nurse does definitely explore kink to a certain degree, it does so in a way that's a little bit reserved or, or not exactly explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas that that is not the case with private parts. Like, by the time that movie comes around, um, he seems a lot... Like, Bartell seems a lot bolder in how he chooses to address the material and in uh, his very good biography, uh, Paul Bartel, The Life and Films, um, this critic Stephen B. Armstrong uh, writes about how around the time that Bartel really started getting serious about doing a feature-length film, he was spending a lot of time at Bleecker Street Cinema in the village. And during this period, he became enamored with a film by a Spanish filmmaker uh, named Fernando Arabal called Viva La Muerte. And uh, this movie was like a very odd blend of, of social criticism, absurd humor, and very sort of vulgar, bizarre, transgressive imagery. And uh, seeing this movie seemed to have a very profound effect on how Bartel approached taboo subject matter in his work. Um, because, you know, after he saw this is when he made private parts and that that there, there's a pretty stark contrast, again, in how some of the subject matter is depicted. There, there's nothing terribly explicit in Naughty Nurse, whereas in Private Parts, he he deals with things a lot more directly. I, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but...
2: I, I agree. I just wonder if some of the salacious elements of Private Parts is something that was actually, not that he didn't want to include them, but that they're part of the exploitation appeal that sure. was kind of pushed onto them, right? I mean, the fact that there's the, the, the funny thing about Naughty Nurse is, even though it does delve into a kind of a comical take on kink, that when, we, when things are a little more serious, even though there is a community gauge to private parts as well, that there's a lot more nudity in that. I mean, there's no nudity at all in uh, it's all kind of implied sexuality um, with Naughty Nurse. But yeah, it's a lot, certainly a lot more explicit, but maybe that's like a, like a marketing thing more than anything else. But no, it also, yeah. but probably, I mean, I, I imagine it's a mix of, of both, right? Uh, and I also wonder, like the market for a nine-minute short film like *Naughty Nurse* in 1969—is it like a calling <laughs> card? Is it something you use to get your foot in the door? Is it something that is shown at parties? Right? I, I just don't understand necessarily how it, it was meant to be used when he made it. Um, but I'm, um, but it, it it's it's still it's such a kind of minor miracle, I suppose that it's survived in such a high quality version that we can now look at. And it seems so reflective of the kind of material he would go on to make.
1: In some of the things that we read leading up to this episode, he mentioned that the secret cinema was showing in museums and things. Yeah. So I wonder if I, I, I don't It's hard for me to imagine Naughty Nurse playing at a museum, but maybe there is <laughs> at the time, some sort of repertory culture around short films that I don't know about. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy for me to imagine kind of a static world when it comes to film, but that's not real, right? Like, things were different at different times, and so maybe there's more of a of a place for something like Naughty Nurse to be shown. I mean, maybe it's even shown as a funny short before, you know, a more explicit film. I don't know. It feels like the comedian who warms up for the dancer <laughs> or something, you know? It's like it's got sexy themes, but it's still funny, you know? i mean i wish
2: that was still part of the theatrical process right the you know not the classic necessarily though i wouldn't mind it like the the cartoons and the newsreels and things like that but i love short movies and it it just feels like people you know lots of these incredible and really well-known filmmakers have this collection of short films if you go on to their internet movie database profile and it's just like they're not available anywhere to watch and it's just like well you know I I understand that at the time you know maybe they feel a little awkward even about people seeing their work of them still in development but to me it's like it's such a part just like this right it's a key it's a Rosetta Stone for a lot of what they're going to do and as someone who just loves film and filmmakers and the work that they do and knowing that short films don't get as much respect as feature-length films to me it's like I just want to see them right I want to see what it's all about
0: um, and, and if any of the listeners are curious about Naughty Nurse and they want to check it out, it is on YouTube, uh, in addition to being available on that Criterion release of Eating Raul. So uh, we'll I'll put just a make link sure- the, I'll we,
2: put a link to that into the show notes just to make sure that anyone who wants to check it out can. It's a lot of fun to check out.
0: So coming up after the break, Paul Bartel's 1972 feature length directorial debut, Private Parts. Hello? Hello, anybody there?
1: If somebody's there, you better talk or I'm hanging up. How did you like those things I gave you, Cheryl? George, is that you? Oh, I, I liked them. I, I really did. They were really neat. I, I never saw
0: anything like them before.
1: You look terrific wearing those things. Thank you. Was it exciting? George. I don't know exactly what
2: you want. I love the gifts and things. I mean, you're the only one who doesn't
1: treat me like a little girl. You think of me as a woman, don't you?
0: Yes. I was wondering,
1: wouldn't you like to really get together? We could talk or something, and you could take my picture. I'd love to pose for you, George, honest. I'd do anything you ask me to. You can come to my room, like tonight, even. I'll wear the thing she gave me.
0: Say, ten o'clock. Try and come, okay, George? George, are you there? George. Young Cheryl moves into her estranged aunt Martha's rundown King Edward Hotel. One of its offbeat residents, disturbed photographer George takes special interest in her. Cheryl begins suspecting that a resident was murdered. So the cast for Private Parts features Anne Ryman as Cheryl Stratton, Lucille Benson as Aunt Martha Atwood, John Vantonio as George Atwood, Laurie Main as Reverend Moon, my favorite character, (laughs) and Stanley Livingston as Jeff. I think before we start discussing the film in earnest, it's important to sort of contextualize it in terms of the kind of films that were contemporaneous to it, like specifically, exploitation movies, and how that may or may not have how, 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 how the film may or may not have been hurt by those associations. But first, I kind of like to just hear your general thoughts on the movie. You know, did you like it? Did you hate it? Are you somewhere in between? Uh, so Liam, let's start with you. What did you think?
1: I mean, I really enjoyed it i think um uh it's <laughs> it's different than i've so i've I've seen this trailer a million times thanks to exhum films. It's just one of those trailers they like to put into a horror or uh, another screening. It's just one of those ones, and I had no idea until we started this show who had directed it or anything about it, so I was pretty stoked to watch this, because I'm like, oh yeah, Private Parts, I've seen this trailer so many times, and it was nothing like I thought it would be from the trailer at all. Well, I wouldn't say nothing, but it, it was surprising uh, the tone of it, the, the, some of the themes of it, where it ended up, that ending, holy crap, uh, and I was, um, I think, entertained is is just the least of the things I was feeling. Like, I was feeling like that it was really smart <laughs> and really interesting, and I was having fun with it, and it was um, messing with expectations people have while, about this sort of movie and all, all that kind of stuff. I will say there are aspects of the film that I don't know how to interpret, you know, or I don't know how to feel about, you know. Um, And that's not um, simply because, you know, maybe maybe it doesn't matter what I think. Like, maybe I don't get to have an opinion because, you know, Doug will tell you, I have lots of opinions I probably have no right to. Uh, that I express on recordings all the time, I but have to I edit them
2: out all the time. It's really yeah, embarrassing. It's actually. really embarrassing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but no,
1: no. But you know what I mean. Like, it's not just like a like a fear of having an opinion. I really don't know what to make of certain aspects of this film that I'm sure we're going to get to. Uh, but you know, for those people listening who haven't seen this movie, at some point we're going to spoil some big surprises because we just can't discuss it without it. Uh, and and you know. I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about it, but I, I certainly, honestly, I think I love this movie. Like I, I really, really enjoyed it, and, and and I'm interested to hear what y'all think about it.
0: Doug, what about you?
1: You know,
2: you shared with us the trailer from Hell with commentary by notorious piece of shit John Landis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it's it's interesting to see his perspective on it because he had an actual relationship with Paul Bartel and worked with him, uh, and he said it was Paul Bartel's best movie that's what his opinion is and you I know what I don't know if I agree with that at this point but I will say that it's the the movie that I have seen in recent memory that surprised me the most by how good it was and how polished it was maybe also because having seen his two short films which have you know sort of technical limitations and black and white and post up sound and all that seeing his real vision with you know low budget production values but production values all the same it really gave me a full appreciation for his skills as a filmmaker. But the thing that really took me by surprise, outside of the plot elements, which are very hard not to spoil, by the way, because the when the movie is all leading towards a moment, and you can feel it as you're watching it, and the oh, big yeah, reveal... Yeah. I mean, I think because we are grown-up people in the year 2022, we all kind of knew what was coming to a certain extent. Maybe sure. not all the details, yeah. but I think we saw it coming. But it's it still... For 1972, this is an outrageous. But the thing that was a surprise, aside from that, was how Hitchcockian it is. It feels yes. a- almost like a tribute to the kind of voyeuristic Hitchcock films of the 19. 19- 40s and 50s and 60s. Agreed. Yes, and it, the it,
0: implicating it, of the audience and, and really understanding and, man, and, and manipulating the pleasure that we take in the act of watching.
2: Absolutely, and lots of... There's tons of POV shots, and, I mean, it feels... I mean, it, it, it certainly owes something to to Psycho to a certain extent as well because of one of the characters in here. And and it, it it's funny because it doesn't feel like a De Palma film, like that kind of Hitchcock tribute. It doesn't have that sort of... Um, focus on style necessarily. But it also, it does have that kind of toned up, cranked up perversity or or yeah. sexual element that you see in De Palma's tributes to Hitchcock. So it's, it's funny. In 1972, it feels it feels way ahead of its time in a lot of ways, though in other ways, particularly with the exploita- exploitation elements, it feels very much of its era. I was delighted by it. I I don't know, again, I, if I would consider it Paul Bartel's best movie. There's still some I haven't seen and that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about this podcast but I will say that my understanding previously was that Paul Bartel was a good filmmaker that became a great filmmaker but from watching this I get the impression that he was great right from the beginning
0: yeah I completely agree and just going back to um, you know the discussion about exploitation movies and the point you made about how um, perhaps uh, You know there was some type of interference where, you know, he was made to play up some of those exploitation elements a bit. I mean, this movie certainly does play to the grindhouse crowd to a certain degree. I mean, somebody gets decapitated within the first ten minutes of this movie.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) It's an an insane escalation, Um, but the the movie doesn't just rely on cheap thrills. There's a really interesting twisted sort of psychological component to it. And as you, we've already discussed, um, that Hitchcockian element. Um, and, and of course, it probes into gender and sexuality and constructs of identity. So there's a lot of interesting subtext to dig into.
1: I don't know if this would have played this way at the time. But as a, as a modern viewer, the obvious uh, sort of red herring of it all set up by that axe. Ch- it's so brutal, the decapitation, that <laughs> even though there is a character that is maybe the one that the movie is pushing us to be unsure about for a lot of, you know, not unjustifiable reasons, you, as a modern viewer, you know. It's not going to be that, right? Like there's going to be something you just know that from having watched movies like this, but that doesn't take away from the tension. It actually made it I had this sense of doom because I had a good idea of probably how things are going to work out, but that didn't make it it wasn't like knowing how a magic trick works. It was like knowing how like a tragedy was going to end. You know what I mean? Like it, it was like like not, not that this film was tragic, but just like be feeling like, "Oh, I think I know what's going on here." It just it actually made it a little bit more. While the while the movie definitely is like funny to some extent and has sure. like a dark humor to it, I had a sense of dread watching it because I'm like, oh, I kind of know how this is gonna fucking work out to some extent, though wow. the details of which were far beyond. And it gave me anxiety. I was feeling anxiety, and I don't know if it played that way in 1972, but for me, that's how I felt. It was like, oh, here we go. Oh, what the fuck. Yeah, I, I mean, he
0: does a genuinely good job building tension.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, 100%. I, I think that you shouldn't shy away from that idea of tragedy because the movie also has sure, a level yeah, of empathy yeah. for its yes. villains, let's say, that you might not expect for a movie of this time period, right? These are these are people who are um, dealing with in, inner turmoil and conflict. And, you know, in at the end of the movie, once we get to it, and again, I know we're going to c- kind of deconstruct it in just a little bit, I I felt like I felt very sad because pe- yeah you know a lot yeah. of people didn't deserve what was hap- were happening to them and and you there were no kind of set good guys and bad guys like you would normally find in an exploitation movie in 1972
1: I think that's fair I think though if I I didn't want to lean on the term tragedy too hard sure because that might downplay for the few people listening who haven't seen it yet the other campier aspects of the of the film and that's to me part of maybe why i found the movie so impressive because there are technical limitations it's not maybe all it, it does have seams i guess you would say but for me the way that it manages all these different tones into one thing that really works is partly what made it like just really fun and interesting to watch you know You know, it's
2: kind of not as explored of an idea in regards to the Roger Corman camp of filmmakers that would be kind of raised in the mid to the late 70s. You know, you're Scorsese and you're Jonathan Demi and Paul Bartel and Joe Dante, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is, and I mean, this is, it's usually positioned as, oh, it's their film school. And then they went on to make bigger movies. But the idea that they could get sort of these transgressive themes into exploitation movies, I know this is before the the. The big roger corman kind of new world pictures phase but you know with gene corman involved and things like that it th- that kind of transgressiveness that's allowed in those films is i think a lot more interesting than the idea of all these people
1: learning on the job and making no money doing it
0: yeah yeah I, i'm totally with you there
1: it also feels though like for me watching this is like the transgressiveness of it like getting back to adriana what you were talking about with the association with the exploitation the transgressiveness of it, of this film puts it in that world but it feels different because for me at least i feel like bartel has an nice, i has a reason for doing what he's you know like sometimes when movies play with elements maybe not exactly like this but similar to what's going on in this movie it kind of feels like Some of these directors, they're just like, I don't know, we need something like there could be this, you know, throw this in there, throw that in there. I don't know. Just anything that sounds crazy. Whereas that at no point do I feel like Bartel is just like, let me just do this because it's crazy. Like, yeah, it it doesn't really
0: have that whiff of sensationalism to the same degree that a lot of those other films do
1: and which doesn't mean there aren't things that are sensational like a lot of this movie is like whoa okay but like (laughs) there's a reason for it. it's it it, 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 there's a point to it it's not just like i don't know there's a doll there i don't know let's put a doll we'll just do a doll whatever it's like you completely understand why this is what's in the movie even if that logic is crazy. It's there and it makes sense. And sometimes I suspect there's aspects of this movie that I, maybe are even more thought out that I need to rewatch it to like connect with, if that makes sense.
0: It's also. No, that totally I, makes sense. I mean, we've talked
2: about this from the first episode as well, but you kind of have to watch this with the knowledge that it's made by a queer director, right? Yes. I mean, that's so essential to how you interpret whether something is meant to be. You know, whether something is just meant to be honestly funny, or if something is meant to be exploitative, or maybe a combination of the two. And you mentioned, you know, your favorite character, Reverend Moon, in it. And I think that's a really good example of it, right? A an explicitly queer character who is played, you know, for laughs, but also you know, like a character that that is not so far removed from a reality, or like a closet character, or someone who is living this kind of double life, and that investigation of their life that we get to see when the character kind of goes through their apartment, I think is really interesting. Right. And again, it's, it's played fairly lightly, but it's still not something that you see a lot of in 1972.
0: Yeah. And honestly, he, he feels like a real person.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, so just before we, you know, go deeper into this movie and maybe talk about some of the things we've been alluding to, I just want to share some facts about the production. So, uh, the original title of this movie is Blood Relations, which is a nod to this theme of incest that runs through the film, and I'm sure we'll get into that a bit. Um, the screenplay is penned by Bartel's UCLA friends, uh, Les Rendelstein and Phil Kearney, um, with uncredited contributions from Bartell. I think he did some rewrites. Um, and then, of course, it's produced by Gene Corman, who was with MGM. So this, this was not a New World Pictures feature, although Bartel was kind of, at, the, at this point, like kind of on the periphery of New World. Um, and then the movie received very mixed reviews and MGM struggled a lot with how to market it. So it did not do well at the box office and subsequently bartell tried to promote it on his own and he was not very successful in that either and i have this little excerpt here and it's from uh that paul bartell biography i mentioned earlier um where Stephen armstrong quotes an interview that bartell gave um where he says When it was finished and turned over to MGM, the marketing people didn't know what to do with it. Mr. Aubrey, who is the president of MGM Studios at the time, James Aubrey, Mr. Aubrey personally changed the title from Blood Relations to Private Parts, which in 1971 was unprintable in major newspapers. In Chicago, the film was advertised as Private Arts, in boston it was advertised as private party which i'm sorry i i can't get through that without laughing that is absurd uh and then and then the uh, armstrong goes on to write Bartel had been so annoyed by aubrey's decision in fact that he approached the executive in person and told him that the picture should be called cocks and cunts <laughs> and yeah i mean we, we before we recorded, we were talking about this a bit, and it just doesn't make a lot of sense as to why the title private parts would be so controversial and unprintable and unmarketable when Deep Throat was everywhere around the same time and, you know, porno chic was starting to happen. It's just, it's it's kind of incongruous. Especially
2: because you can really take it as having you know, a double meaning. I mean, we know what private parts means, but like in in the case of this movie, it has that double meaning, right? It's very much about the voyeurism and things like that. But the fact is, why would a studio that's having trouble marketing something change the title to something that they know is going to make it more difficult? Maybe it's like a a way to kind of gain publicity by, you know, the film that you can't see the title of, that you have to call the theater to get the the title. But I mean, it's that, that, when a movie that already has a lot working against it, it just seems like a very strange decision.
1: It's also weird because when's the last time you heard someone use the phrase private parts to refer? <laughs> like we just live in a culture now where people on TV during the evening news just say like, genitalia and we're all okay with that like the idea i can see someone... this being an hbo max original series called cocks and cunts yeah exactly <laughs> i mean you can you know you can say fuck on tv now so it's weird to be like private parts well i know what they mean by that Ooh, <laughs> the i mean l- like legitimately like imagine someone you know an adult talking to another adult saying private parts or bathing suit area or any number of <laughs> euphemisms for, for for cocks and guns And you know what I mean? Like, the the, the idea here, like, the, uh, it's hard to relate to. Uh, but on the other hand, it's like, it is an environment, I guess, in 1972 where there are a lot of people who would see that knowing full well that it could refer to something else and are only, you know what I mean? It, it's almost like in the denial, it's that much more, you know what I mean like like i I wonder if you said to a younger person not just because it's not a relevant term anymore but you might say private parts and someone might not know what that means at all like they might be like which parts are private like what, do, what are we talking about you know what I mean I don't know it, it, it's almost like in the denial of it it becomes that much more of a like oh my god well they they're referring to to, to penises or oh, to, to vaginas oh oh my god like it's like a like it, it it's more powerful because of that.
2: And, of course, it, it because we are looking at it from the perspective of many years later, the fact is when people think of a movie called Private Parts, they're probably thinking of the Howard Stern movie, Private Parts. Oh, yeah, shit, that's I my forgot all about when that. When I say that. Right? And, I mean, like, like, so, and that, there, there was certainly no controversy in 1997 or whenever it was when that movie came out. and it's I mean, there was controversy around Howard Stern generally, but not the title. If anything, it was probably seen as somewhat reserved because the whole movie is about kind of a reserved version of who that person is.
1: I mean, honestly, I'm sure people saw that title and thought, like, it's witty because he means more than just his dick. You know what I mean?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think it was based on his book as well. But, I mean, yeah, exactly, right? But, like, that's the double-meaning aspect is here, too. But it's just, I mean, um, it's a movie that just wasn't made for its time to a certain extent, but it's not like it's missing that time by... I think of this movie as something that would have fit better in 1974 when you have the Paul Morrissey... Andy Warhol movies, and you have Rocky Horror Picture Show. and sure, yeah. it, that It feels like a movie that's just enough ahead of its time that makes it impossible to market, while two years later you could be like, I mean, I know that not all those movies I just mentioned were successes, but financial successes, but that you, it would just be a lot easier to present it to people in a, a form that would be understandable in 1974.
0: Well, Bartell, I guess, was cursed with being ahead of his time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so because this movie was a bit of a flop... Bartell had difficulty finding work after the film's release and he didn't really have a gig again until uh, 1974 when Roger Corman hired him to be a second unit director on Big Bad Mama. And then that's, you know, when he entered his new world pictures era. So a question for both of you, how would you classify this film?
1: I think it works for, for me. I I find it, it, it makes the most sense to me as a, as a dark comedy, which is maybe disrespecting the actual tension that's in it. Cause it is very much a tense film and it, it gave me some serious anxiety at times, but I think overall it still feels like there's a comedic tone to it that, that maybe is darker than, um, than a lot of people are used to, but I, I don't know that that's, that uh, makes the most sense to me. I think like, if you go into it expecting
2: a horror movie, you would, you'll would you get all the tropes that you would expect. So at its core, I think it's a horror movie in the same way that, again, a Hitchcockian one is. Sure. But I think the, the, the thing to take, that I took from it at least, is after the tragedy of the movie occurs, there's a scene where police arrive and they're investigating. All of that material is played almost... Like right up as a comedy, like they're not taking it seriously. They're making jokes the whole time. That we're even when they're at
0: the crime scene.
2: (laughs) Even when at the crime scene, when when there's a victim in front. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, certainly. But I think that gives us kind of an idea of the tone that really the whole movie is is kind of grappling with. This is a very dark, dark, darkly comedic horror movie. You know, uh, I I think it probably had to fulfill some of those kind of horror uh, um, elements that you would expect, and maybe it was pushed in that direction a bit. But I mean, a movie where someone gets their head cut off in the first 10 minutes, hey, that's pretty much a horror movie for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see both of your p- points. I I think I would classify it more as a psychological thriller with some like dark comedy and exploitation elements. But I mean, I think this really speaks to how well... Bartell juggles tone in this movie because it really goes into a, like a lot of places and at, at, at no point does it ever or I didn't at least ever feel like taken out of the movie because tonally it, it didn't work. Like he does a very good job of, of, of making the tone feel very coherent even though it, it, it does sort of go to different extremes.
2: And on the the idea of kind of sucking the viewer in as well, he really does a great job of maintaining the mystery at its core, right? I mean, it yes. ke- keeps you wondering while you have this main character who's kind of discovering their own sexuality and their relationship with people and the way that they kind of w- work around the limitations of living in this kind of strange hotel and all the weird quirky characters within it. I just like the idea that like I felt super engaged even when I kind of had a pretty good idea of where we were heading. I was really excited and and really curious about how that was going to be played out on film. And I I was not disappointed. It just, it really feels like someone who has a real comfort with the language of film, which I wouldn't have expected so early in his career.
0: Let's talk about the hotel for a bit, because Mm -hmm. I know at this point, it's kind of a cliche to say, like, the setting is a character all its own. (laughs) But I feel like that's really true about the hotel in this movie. Like, it, it... it's such a big... It has such a, a, a huge presence. And it 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 kind of... It creates this sort of like bizarro Alice in Wonderland experience where Cheryl is going down the rabbit hole and uh, kind of...
2: She's through the looking glass as soon as she goes in that front yeah, door, for sure. As yeah, she yeah.
0: As, as she is kind of exploring her burgeoning sexuality, she is also literally exploring these different rooms in the hotel where she um her aunt martha warns her against a string too far from her room but of course you know she is like a, a curious young woman so she steals the keys and starts basically like breaking into people's apartments um <laughs> you know and snooping around and we kind of get a sense of all, all, all who all of these various eccentric characters are through her um, Poking and prodding.
2: I like how she carries the towels with her, so she has an excuse if anyone yeah. ever comes, If anyone ever sees her, she's like, "I'm just delivering the towels."
0: <laughs> well, she uh, she strikes a deal with her aunt that basically she she can stay. There are, there are no vacancies really, so she can stay as long as she makes herself useful and, and helps um, you know clean the, the apartments and, and 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 you know help around the building.
1: I know this sort of, like, um, hotel as residence was a phenomena all over the country. Yeah, I
0: find it very strange.
1: But thanks to movies, as soon as this is the story, I just think about Los Angeles. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like... It, you know, every city in America, especially in the 70s, had these uh, turning a hotel into a place where people just live in, right. you know, basically a hostel. I, 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 when I say hostel, I, I mean in both senses of the word. You know, it, it feels both <laughs> like a youth hostel and like a hostel place to live. But uh, this phenomenon was all over the country. And yet, as soon as it started in this movie, and in most movies I see it in, I think, oh, this is so L.A. Especially, like, the setup of this particular hotel just feels- it's Funny
2: you say that because I mean I don't have any experience with this whatsoever. But the movie that this most reminded me of in terms of that setting was *Basket Case*, the Frankie Henlyder movie, uh, yeah, which sure. also totally. takes place at a very similar rundown well, junky
1: hotel. Here's the, here's the diff- here's the big difference here, Doug. And I actually thought about that was the other example when I thought what's well, a counter example to what I'm saying would be, and it's uh the L.A. ones have still have grand entrances, yeah, like exactly uh, right. the ones in the ones in New York. <laughs> and this isn't true everywhere. Like I'm sure in other Uh, cities in America, the hotels had. But whenever I see them in a movie in New York the, the lobby's literally like a fucking, uh, like, it's like as, as no frills as possible. It's like when they built this thing, they knew like, fuck you. But the ones that that I see in the movies in LA, the lobby is still pretending like this is a cool hotel. You know, it's still like, hey, come on. It looks nice in here. And then once you see the room, you're like, oh fuck really? Well, that's, I mean,
0: aunt Martha on multiple points tries to emphasize the fact that this is the last reputable hotel in all of the city. Uh, I mean, it's really not, but you know, <laughs> I think that kind very of very exclusive. Your point.
2: <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's funny that we also see a hotel in naughty nurses as well, right? But that's more like a New York style hotel than yeah, one the one we have here,
0: for for sure. Well, I think, I mean, if we're gonna eventually talk about the twist with George, we should we should probably. I, I feel like maybe the the incest angle should come first because. Like, part of Cheryl's, like, character arc is that she is very intrigued by George and, mm-hmm. you know, how mysterious he is. And, uh, you know, there there is a definite attraction there. But, you know, we find out that George is Martha's son, so he is Cheryl's cousin. And that doesn't seem to deter Cheryl one bit. And <laughs> I find it interesting the way that, like, the incest element is not really... Played up too much in the movie, it's there and acknowledged, but you know nobody nobody seems to have any real angst over it, and the movie kind of moves past that aspect very quickly.
2: I've like, never consider I didn't really consider it even for a second, uh, though. Of course, you're right, uh, and and, and I, maybe it's because the movie bypasses it because it has such other things on its mind, but certainly that kind of the crossing the lines of the experienced sexuality is something the movie is interested in, R- right from the first scene, which combines both voyeurism and you kind of like a, a let's say a quote unquote, inappropriate sexuality where she's watching her friend have sex. Um, it, I, I feel like that it kind of carries through for the entire movie, but yeah, no, the incestuous part of it, I mean, certainly it feels part of Once you get to the very end of the movie, it kind of becomes a little bit more explicit, but it's not something I considered in regards to their relationship.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's um, it, maybe it, it's because
2: I'm from Newfoundland, where incest <laughs> is not such a
1: <laughs> not such an uncommon thing. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's something I kind of thought about, but but um, I it wasn't it wasn't at that strongly on my mind though. I it, it, I was more well to be
0: fair, there's a lot going on in this movie, yeah, and I yeah, think yeah, yeah. it very quickly sort of like other aspects of the film um like rapidly equips that in terms of being shocking or surprising
1: i think i was so wrapped up in both the gender question which was a reveal of something that i already felt was probably true and then the confirmation that aunt uh that uh Aunt, aunt martha aunt martha was the was the axe-wielding maniac which basically the the confirmation of the hunches i had from the beginning of the movie was had me so wrapped up that then the further thought of like oh and also incest was like it was there like i thought it but it wasn't like as as prevalent pre- present in my mind but by sure, the way fair. spoiler alert at this point <laughs> yeah i
2: mean yeah 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 I mean, it's it's difficult to talk about this movie without spoiling it because, and we're going to now. But the difficulty with it is that I feel like this movie is still, even among our circles, fairly underseen and under. Oh yes, it is. So and and a lot of what makes it interesting, for a first watch at least, is the mystery and how it's all going to wrap up. And it, it I it, you know I mentioned already that. John Landis trailers from hell and even he's like very hesitant to spoil too much about it it's a movie that is probably best appreciated having seen it first but you would hope you know just like like a like a director's commentary you would hope that the anyone listening to this will have tried to watch the movie before listening to us talk about it
0: okay so I guess I mean we might as well dive into the thing we've been alluding to uh so far which uh it's I guess it's the big twist of the movie, it's what everything is leading up to um, and it has to do with this character George who is a photographer who lives in the building. Um, he's kind of just skulking around uh, at one point Cheryl follows him out of the hotel uh, you know where he proceeds to visit a sex shop and is, is, is walking around you know a park at night and then we see we get a, a great director cameo with Paul Bartel. He <laughs> uh, pops out from behind a tree as Cheryl is tailing George and just kind of grumbles God <laughs> oh, damn no. lady
1: <laughs> ah, no privacy uh
0: eventually what happens is um Cheryl and George um you know meet meet up in his room and they he she starts posing for him and then uh, oh, some. I should probably talk about the whole blow-up doll thing. There are there are little hints throughout the movie that there's something going on with him that we don't know about, but that there there, se- there seems to be some kind of like impotency issue. Or, and this is definitely like one of the weirder elements of the movie. Uh, he like keeps a uh, an inflatable doll in his bed and he has this like syringe that he takes out as a sort of um like phallic stand-in and uh w- like y- withdraws his own blood and then ejects it injects it into the blow-up doll and so i guess that's some kind of like uh you know that's symbolic of uh, ejaculation or insemination and you know eventually when he is with cheryl he he kind of Busts out the syringe, and obviously that does not sit well with Cheryl. What are you
2: doing? Hey, hey, what's going on?
0: Please, it's all right.
1: Just lie still. Relax. I'll explain. What's that? It's all right. Let me. I have to. It won't hurt. What's that stuff? It's spilling. It's no, don't! It's
0: Is it be all right. I uh, Things escalate to the point where she she winds up, uh, I think, like knocking over a white. A, a onto his head, and it knocks him out. And, um, you know, that's that's when the cops show up, and we find out that uh, George was, you know, assigned female at birth. You know, I think the, the shock, it's supposed to be that George is actually a woman. And it's sort of, it's like a, it's very like Z-Man in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls Absolutely. meets Sleepaway Camp. Mm-hmm. Although, like, I don't, I do not think... This reveal is as grotesque as it is in Sleepaway Camp. This movie is, you know, part of a, unfortunately, like a long line of films that associate gender non-conforming behaviors.
2: It's a very difficult thing to talk about, right? Uh, I mean, I find it exceedingly difficult to talk, mostly because... I mean, I'm glad that you brought up Sleepaway Camp already, which is a very troublesome movie in a lot of ways. But I've heard full-throated defenses of Sleepaway Camp from uh, trans and uh, non-binary critics before and also uh, critics um, who, who condemn it. Um, and lots of them, for for particularly that ending. I don't think anyone would be surprised about what we're talking about in regards to the ending of Sleepaway Camp. And that's why I mentioned earlier, the fact that this is directed by a queer director, I think is very important contextually in regards to it. But it is something, I'm so glad that you shared this article with us about transmasculinity in horror from gailydreadful.com, which to me, it unlocked something that I never, I, it's only because of my own limited worldview that I had not considered before, but it was so important for this, which is that you can turn around the critique a little. And again, this is coming from a cis male who does not have as much experience in these areas that, that allows me to speak with any kind of uh, definitive kind of confidence. But this, this idea that this is a character that just like so many trans people are being forced into a gender and forced into gender conformity, that, that they, in, in, not in a way that we're used to, where someone is presenting as a male because they were born uh, with a consideration of being a male gender, uh, that in this case, this is a person who was born female uh, and considers themselves female, but has been forced into a gender that they do not connect with, and that has led them to, in, in this case, in so many movies of this time period, and ones that we've talked about, to have this kind of erratic mental illness type behavior. right? And it's it's really interesting, I think, to think about it from the perspective of, oh, this isn't saying, and I don't know, again, I can't speak for everyone involved with it, or even anyone talking about it right here. This isn't saying that trans people or gender nonconforming people have a mental illness that causes them to be violent, or that we should connect mental illness and violence with that but instead that when you're trying to force people to be who they are not then it's going to tear them up inside and cause erratic behavior and that still has a lot of troublesome elements to it but i think it's a little bit more easy to interpret from a 2022 lens than something like sleep away camp which seems to end with oh the killer is actually a male the whole time. It's actually a boy, and look how fucked up that is and how crazy it is and how everyone... And I mean, I think you can interpret that in several different ways, as I've already said, but I think that the way that it's presented here is a lot more interesting and a lot more nuanced.
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think I think the movie makes it very clear that Aunt Martha has a lot of hang-ups about... Absolutely. Um, ...uninhibited female sexuality and, she, and, you know, this weird Madonna whore dichotomy and uh, it's it's implied that um she, you know she uh like socialized George as a man because she she has this complex about um you know burgeoning female sexuality. She start she starts tr- like turning on on Cheryl too and trying to sort Absolutely. of Absolutely. impose her 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 like weird hang-ups on Cheryl as well and also to your to a point that you made earlier William um there I I think that there is certainly an element uh a deep empathy and compassion for the character of George um and there there's there's something uh, just going back to this this Aunt Martha character again um I I find there, there's like an interesting sort of like paradox going on with her character because um, she did sort of, you know, force her child into this this sort of role that didn't fit them. But at the same time, she says these like deeply profound and insightful things. So I, I have this written somewhere. Um, there's a point in the movie where she's talking to Cheryl about attending a funeral and that, that, that she, she's like weirdly stoked on this funeral. <laughs> and Cheryl is asking her why. And she, and, and, and she starts talking about how you sort of like funerals sort of uh, reveal things about life. And she says, the body is a prison that traps and bends the natural spirit to its will. It makes us weak or sick or ugly it makes us into men or women or whatever it likes, whether we like it or not. I don't know. Like, I just found it was an interesting contrast. You know, this idea that like the body is a prison.
2: But an I, don't, irony I don't know as well. Right. Because yeah. She, yes. Did, I, I, irony
0: is, is the right word
2: because she she herself was bending someone to her own will. And, and, and seems right. like something. Yeah. It, it's, it is a movie that, I mean, I think it, that character is so interesting in a lot of ways. She's also obsessed with trying to capture on film the, the moment that the spirit leaves the body. Spirit
0: leaves the body, yeah.
2: When George is killed at the end of the movie, and I mean, we're spoiling things anyway, and she sees them in that kind of peaceful state, It's it, instead of being angry, she's almost serene about it because this is a person who was so tortured by something that she did, that she forced upon them, and now they're finally at peace, but I mean, that kind of reinforces the idea that for her you know, the only piece comes from death. Uh, 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 before that, we are all victims of our own caged uh, body.
0: In one way or another, yeah. We i am like, what What are your thoughts on this? Because it seems like you, ha- well, you, you you, were kind of saying earlier that you weren't sure what to make about certain elements of this movie, and I kind of mm-hmm. assumed that this was one of them, so. <laughs> yeah, I
1: mean, it is <clears throat> because, um, you know, it's interesting, Doug, brought up sleepaway camp because um uh it's i i I have no problem with sleepaway camp saying like there are things i like about this movie and i find the ending reprehensible and 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 and, you know i I think sometimes when it comes to these themes uh you know cishet uh, uh uh ben like me uh, sometimes don't say anything because they don't know what to say. They feel uncomfortable having any sort of opinion, and that's how not- I don't think you feel can me-
0: you can mess it up as much as I did. earlier. Yeah. So.
1: I'm already feeling uncomfortable about the things I said and
2: some of the terminology. Yeah. I Yeah, so, so
1: so so so. But uh, but that's what I was saying, Doug. Is that uh, that's not me. I'm more. I'm more than willing and have many times put my foot in my mouth because I have a strong opinion. And I, I think my opinion is uh less important. I'm more than willing to say, well, you know, if 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 someone who's trans wants to defend sleepaway cam, that matters a lot more than me saying it's reprehensible. Sure. Me, absolutely. That, that, that's that's fine. That doesn't change the fact that I have a fucking opinion. And and that's the reality, right? Like I think there's more weight to their opinion, but I still have one. And straight up i don't know what to make of this because yes it in a very surfacey way falls into the sort of uh uh a monster, you know the the gender bending monster you know yeah. this idea that whatever on the other hand um this movie takes seriously other aspects of that wor- you know one of the weird things about Sleepaway Camp is that what's going on there is almost kind of sexless. Like the, the issue is, is the, the being forced to be who you're not. Whereas this is very much rooted in a patriarchal view of who women are. And, and I'm, I'm someone who often talks about how I think that heterosexism is very much rooted in misogyny, that they are yeah. often related, that they're, that the, you know, that these men are punished for not being the sorts of men they're supposed to be, and women are punished for not being the sorts of women they're supposed to be, and that the sexuality is associated with these very strict sort of gender identities. And I think this movie takes that seriously, that that's part of the narrative. And maybe a uh, darkly comedic horror film is not the best place for some people to feel like they're represented or that something's going on. But I do think, like... In playing with these things, that there's more going on here than just, like, the way Sleepaway Camp ends, or, or the central idea of Sleepaway Camp, uh, it just feels like someone being like, I don't know, it's fucking weird. You know what I mean? Like, it, 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 they, they can throw anything at the, the same way that, like, when the boat accident happens. It just made that – it doesn't have any weight to it, whereas in this film, every aspect from the syringe to how Aunt Martha is to the relationship between Cheryl and and George and (laughs) – you know what I mean? Like everything that's going on, as much as it's played to some extent for sensationalism and at times for humor – there's still something else going on to it, too. There's some other thought going on there. And, like, I, I, you know, maybe it's naive to think that if I watch Mm. private parts more, I'll have a deeper understanding of some of what Bartel was thinking about it. But I at least feel like he was thinking about it, that he wasn't just, like... Oh, uh, yeah. guys, you know it would be fucked up? Uh, George is a woman. Oh, it's so fucked up. Like, no, that there's, there's the, something else going on. I can say pretty on.
0: definitively that was not the thought right. process. Right, Just know exactly. the kind of person Bartell was. And I think it's worth noting, you know, just to put things in the context of 1972 when this was released, that, like, for its time, that reveal was probably a very bold. Absolutely. <laughs> boundary pushing yeah, yeah, thing. Definitely. And, you know, at the time, the they didn't have kind of, you know, the language and the understanding of the spectrum, I suppose, of, 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 of gender identity that we do today.
2: It's, you know, it's interesting to watch material about sexuality from this time period, which often conflates drag with trans characters. Uh, yeah. It seems like it's they think it's exactly the same thing. Uh, and it because there's so much of a lack of understanding. Uh, and, and like you said, there, there isn't the language to be able to describe it in a way that everyone can just completely understand in a way that we mostly have, I think, in modern day. But yeah, this is, the, you're talking about a movie that that is dealing with something that <laughs> it already, it's funny to think that this is a movie that its title couldn't be shown in the theaters, uh, sorry, uh, the title couldn't be shown in newspapers when it's really the content in it that would be, I think, particularly maybe controversial to people who didn't know what it was gonna be going into it. I have a question for the both of you though, which is about what happens after? So I mentioned already oh. about those cops showing up and what they find in George's room when they do arrive. And then, of course, there's kind of a, a, a postscript to it as well as we find out uh, what happens to Cheryl afterwards. I was a little confused to be a little honest with you in regards to what we're supposed to take from that. We see that Aunt Martha, she's, she, they've changed her clothes. How, what is your interpretation of that, Adriana?
0: I I, <laughs> I wish I had a, a, a good answer for you, but, like, I, I've seen this movie s- several times, and I still can't quite make sense of that ending. I mean, it seems like Cheryl has now taken on the Aunt Martha persona. Yes. But I it's not really clear how that happens.
2: Because <laughs> the last thing we see is that Cheryl and, uh, and Aunt Martha, they're having a confrontation. George is dead. It looks like Aunt Martha is just about to kill Cheryl and then it cuts to the cops arriving and things like that and then what we find is it, when the cops go into the room they find George dead and they find Aunt Martha dead as well she's now dressed in the clothes that Cheryl had been wearing and now Cheryl has taken on the persona of Aunt Martha it's our, I... I mean here's here's an interpretation that I'm just like piecing together in my brain this moment this idea of the maybe the soul leaving the body type thing that it's kind of reinforced a few times maybe well, that and then the soul
0: inhabits it. Cheryl exactly. yeah I mean
2: I look there's no yeah, supernatural I mean, elements to this movie whatsoever so that's yeah. a hard interpretation
0: I think I mean uh, I guess my interpretation is maybe that Cheryl is so traumatized by this experience that she then you know inhabits that kind of like very repressed, mindset that Aunt Martha has and yeah. and and becomes the new Aunt Martha essentially.
1: Yeah, I, I was thinking that because um one thing that we haven't really talked about maybe is how for for Cheryl it, it's it's worth noting that her obsession with and her giving herself to uh George is not like a normal attraction thing. You know what I mean? It's it's like she, he becomes the focus of her need to grow up to become a woman. Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's 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 almost entirely about her. It's never clear that she has any reason to be attracted to George, other than that George is mysterious and writes sexy stuff and you know right. ex- exists and and so it, it it's like she's so focused on him as it relates to her that Well, he then, is
0: validating her voyeuristic impulses. Yes,
1: yes, yes
2: totally. And, and as she says to her on her date as well it's like he's the person who sees her as a grown woman, right? And right. we know that that's from that voyeurism that that she is aware that is
1: happening and kind of plays into. But I think I but I wonder to what extent Vartel is uh i i i don't know what the attitude of the movie is to Cheryl as a character mm. you know so that 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 the, it, perhaps the seeds of of uh, martha's bitterness are in the uh utter naivete of Cheryl you know what i mean like that 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 she's destined to grow into some version of 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 Aunt martha anyway you know i i don't know there was just something about that turn that just felt in a movie that was already about, like, um, identity and and people's uh, sort of having other kind of uh, versions of who they are, like, the reveal of her as Aunt Martha was, like, I don't know, it just made sense to me, even though, Doug, it didn't make sense to me, like, on a logical level, like, I don't quite understand that. It made sense to me thematically. I was like, yeah, okay, that's right. You know what I mean? I'm ashamed
2: to say, Liam, that the movie it most reminded me of was the ending of Manos, the Hands of Fate, where <laughs> <laughs> the character, <laughs> there's, there's a, everyone, anyone who's seen the movie knows the character of Torgo, but what we Tor- find again. at the end is that there's a, a one of the lead characters of the entire movie has now become kind of a new Torgo at the very end, and there's no explanation for exactly how that happened, but uh, hey, it's what I thought of when I was watching Private Pirates. Bet no one's ever said that before. <laughs>
0: That, that makes a, a strange kind of sense actually
2: It did feel like a movie that already had a big twist that it tried to add a little something else onto yeah. it and and it's it again I, don't I was know very that it inter- needed that but I don't know that it needed it I, I was entertained by all the cop stuff just because it's so bizarre and so tonally strange
1: that's him all right I wonder who gave it to him look at the jugs on this guy.
2: Boy, oh boy. With knockers like that, I could go for this guy myself.
1: What's that? Wow. World's oldest go-go dancer. Jeez, Jeff, is that your girl? It's Mrs. Atwood, Cheryl Zandt. What an outfit. Uh, too many
0: sequins. It kind of is like the the screwball comedy of like the cop bits in... A Last House on the Left?
2: Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Just this weird need to put a tonal inconsistency. Except in this movie, at least it's a little more consistent because you do have those supporting comedic characters all the way through.
0: Do you have any final thoughts on the film? Anything you'd like to add that we we haven't yet touched on?
1: I, I, I think for me, I think the comedic elements of the cops towards the end Represent something I suspect is going on in the whole, like like we've all sort of said that the movie has comedic elements as well as the horror, whatever. But I don't know. I I kind of feel like there there. You ever have someone tell you a story that is like so horrific that they're kind of laughing through it because it's also sure almost funny yeah and it's hard that i think this is how i think of this whole movie i feel like this whole movie is a story that Bartel would tell us at a party sometime you know like something he he had heard and he's going to tell us and it's outrageous but there's something like uh in the in the actual tragedy of it that also is comedic it's just not the kind of funny that is easy to find funny. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so then the cops sort of exit that. And that's why, for me, I I get why you guys are like, oh, it feels like a... And uh, I feel different. I think the way that I feel about the movie being somewhat differently maybe than you guys is in that ending, which I felt like, though it was kind of uh, corny maybe... I thought, but there's literally no other way to end the f- like. In my opinion, there's no other way to end the film. She has to become Aunt Martha. It's the only way to for the joke to end. It's the only thing that works. There's nothing else. There, there's literally nothing else. I think that I, I would be satisfied with. And and as much as I understand that, like, yeah, but we don't need it. Like, we have all this other stuff. I'm like, yeah, but I want to know what happened to her. And nothing else makes sense but that she's become Aunt Martha. <laughs> I don't know. It's just for me, it felt like the final reminder that this is everything here has a weight to it and an impact to it, just like one of those stories. But it's also, it, it kind of reminded me it's less personal, but it reminded me of, uh, of like like the the like a comedian who's telling you about having cancer you know what i mean right. or you know what i mean like or, it, it, it's less personal i guess it's more like a comedian telling you about how a neighbor of theirs died but it's also funny the way that they died but it's also terrible because this person died you know what i mean that's that's how it kind of felt is that kind of story
2: i think there's also there's one other thing that i struggle with and part of it is the fact that this is a film that wasn't entirely written by Paul Bartel. Sure. And knowing that yeah. a lot of our interpretation about, and really kind of the good faith interpretations come from the idea that we know that it was directed by a queer director who probably had insights that he was, and we know he puts that, those insights into his films in the short films that we've seen so far. Uh, we, I, I believe I read that the, uh, the screenwriters had based a lot of the characters in this on real people that they knew. Uh, and you can kind of see that texture, that it feels like the... It feels like it would be hard to conjure some of these personality elements out of whole cloth. That There's obviously some reality to what we're seeing here. And I think that that gives this movie a groundedness, even when it gets outrageous, that makes it powerful. You know, it, it gives yeah. it a, a weight that I wouldn't have expected this movie to have. So, it, you know, I I worry a little bit that I'm going to read and and this goes back to what you were saying Liam about my own interpretation based versus someone else's but I'm going to read an interpretation of this film that it that is by someone who sees it as extremely transphobic and hurtful and and though that you know and knowing that I've already said that I don't see that myself entirely that that I'll feel bad about that in the future but it's it's also I feel like I've come to terms with a interpretation of this material that uh i feel and particularly because of paulbert tells what we know about him that i feel generous in regards to that those interpretations but the fact that he wasn't the sole writer of it i think does give me some pause yeah. in regards to that any time that you have and this is something we've gone into a few times now a a character that is revealed like this character is that is then also a killer or uh mentally ill in some way that you know, it it, it it did help reinforce the way that certain people think about trans characters, about uh, gender fluid characters, things like that. And it's, I can still see the negative approach towards it. But it's Paul Bartel that keeps me from from uh, falling into these negative interpretations.
0: One thing I want to touch on really quick. There, an element of the movie that we haven't really discussed yet is the fact that there is... Like, when Cheryl moves in, she learns that her room used to belong to a young woman named Alice, who disappeared.
2: Yeah, Alice doesn't live there and anymore. We...
0: <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to... T- I wanted to bring that up, because at one point, there is an, an old woman is banging on Cheryl's door, asking about Alice, and Cheryl shouts, Alice doesn't live here anymore. And I'm really curious if that's where Martin Scorsese got the title for his film, because... Um, he definitely w- ran in the same circles as Bartel, And I Absolutely. would be very surprised if he didn't see this movie when it came out. So I would be shocked if I'm, they
2: had not my personal seventy three seventy four 73,
0: 74 period. Right. My personal Scorsese headcanon is that he named the movie after that line. <laughs> and yeah, I, just, I literally just said the phrase personal Scorsese headcanon. <laughs> well, I guess that about wraps things up.
1: I'm glad we covered this movie. It was really, really fun to watch. It's funny that when we started this project, the movie that
2: I was most excited to talk about was Death Race 2000, which we're going to talk about, I believe, on the next episode of Bar-Tell Me Something Good. Yes. but uh, And there's so much I can say about that movie, but this was such a huge surprise to me. It, it feels like it re-centers my whole view of Paul Bartell as a filmmaker and his career, and that's what is most kind of rewarding about doing these chronological looks at a filmmaker, is that it, it. I feel like now when I watch Death Race 2000, it's going to be through an entirely different lens.
0: On the next episode of Bartell Me Something Good, we'll be taking a look at his New World Pictures debut, Death Race 2000. So Doug, where can listeners find you on social media?
2: You can find me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And if you want to listen to more episodes of Bar Tell Me Something Good, uh, which of course is, this is only the second episode, but if you want to catch up, you can go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com, which has our whole archive of podcasts, most of them hosted by Liam and myself, uh, about all sorts of different topics, filmmakers, actors, actresses. Uh, you can check out some of our chronological podcasts devoted to people like Alejandro Jodorowsky, Jackie Chan, Dick Miller, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera. Uh, And of course, if you want to find the latest episodes of this podcast and all of our Cinema Morris Word podcasts, you can find it at cinepunks.com, but maybe Liam should talk about that.
1: Yeah, if you head over to dot com, you can, of course, find our whole family of podcasts, as well as writing, uh, a merch store, and our Patreon. Um, And, you know, you can follow CinePunks on social media, c-i-n-e-p-o-n-x, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I'm on Twitter at LiamRules, R-U-L-Z, but you don't want to follow that. That's fine.
0: (laughs) And you can find me on Twitter at E-A-D... BB.
2: And of course, I'll put all those links in the show notes for people who want to check out all of those links or follow who they want to follow, which I would recommend should be everybody.
0: Thanks, Doug. Yeah. And we'll be back soon with Death Race 2000. Thanks for tuning in.
1: Is için